Uh, hello, St. Clair Community Church family. Uh, we are offering to you this week Sunday's recording, uh, not from the pulpit of uh, Ryerson, but from my attic. Uh, this has happened before, and who knows if it'll happen again, but we had some technical difficulties uh, and weren't able to record Nate Wall preaching with us on Sunday. Uh, and in many respects, uh, the word that he offered to us on Sunday felt like the right thing at the right time for our community. And so we just, we didn't want it to be missed and we wanted to give every opportunity for the content of what was shared uh, to be heard. So we're doing kind of a sermon conversation recap uh, to get at the meat of, of what was there on Sunday. Uh, it was a beautiful gathering on Sunday, so we're not even going to try to replicate uh, sort of the moment, uh, but we're hoping to pass on uh the content. So with me in our attic is Nate. Uh, we're going to talk our way through this. Um, we've been doing a summer series now uh, on the life of Moses, and we've been asking different people from our community to preach uh, as we work through the narrative of Exodus and of the life of Moses. And so Nate uh, jumped in on the Passover, uh, and that was his specific focus for us this last week. So, Nate, why don't you uh, tell us everything you know? It's going to be real short. <laughs> or at the very least, uh, offer maybe the same kind of recap of what's going on for the Israelites at this point in the story. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so uh, the first thing to say about, I think, the the Passover as it shows up in the book of Exodus is that it's... Um, it is tied to the story of of Israel um, in like profound ways. In fact, it's kind of at the center of things. So, so when we turn the page to chapter twelve, what, where we are is we're like we're right at the tip over point between um, the ninth of the kind of famous plagues and the tenth and final one that sort of uh, forces Pharaoh to uh, to wave the white flag of surrender and to send. Israelites off. Um, and so, you know, up to that point, then, then for anyone who's not familiar with the story, you've got, uh, you've got this group of people, these kind of wandering nomads in, in the Middle East way back when, and Sarah and Abraham, when they're super old, you know, get, get tapped on the shoulder by God and their descendants eventually end up, um, as refugees in under the, like the, the dominant world empire of the time of the area, at least Egypt. And when they're down there, they end up being uh, in the course of time made into slave labor for the various building projects. Um, and, uh, and then things get even worse because they actually do pretty well. And so, um, so part of the backstory that I think is important for the Passover is that, um, that one of the pharaohs decides that they need a little bit of population control. And so you've got like a government-sponsored program of selective genocide. They try to kill all of the male firstborn children. And in uh, the sermon that kicked off the series, Dave, you talked about the... You, you told the story at the beginning of Exodus where you've got like um, these two Hebrew midwives who end up being God's 
sabotage agents, hmm. um, which is such a fun. It's a fun story in all kinds of ways, and I'll try not to talk about Exodus forever because <laughs> this is maybe my my favorite book in the Bible. But it's one of those many beautiful bits of the Hebrew Bible where um, Pharaoh's given this like horrific order. And Pharaoh doesn't get a name. He's only ever called the king of Egypt. And these two no-name, small-time player um, Hebrew midwives are given names. It's like a subtle way that we're being told that God's sort of like, um, uh, who who impresses God in this story? Anyways, um, uh, because of them and because of God's own sort of sabotage of Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh misses one really important kid, this young this young kid named Moses who gets floated down the river and escapes the bloodshed of the firstborn children. Uh, all of which is kind of like this foreshadowing of what's to come for Israel. Moses gets called uh, at this burning bush, which, uh, you know, that's the um, Kira Mulman unpacked that story for us a couple weekends ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he has all kinds of great reasons why he's not equipped for this. And God sort of like, listens to them patiently and waves them aside and laughs at Moses and sends Moses anyways. Um, when Moses shows up on Pharaoh's doorstep, Pharaoh's not too keen on losing his entire labor force. Um, and so you end up with this tug of war that is the, the plagues, uh, this tug of war between Pharaoh and this particular God, the God of Israel, the God who made a promise to be the God of this people. And, um, and then uh, and then at the, at the climax of these plays, you have this, this really like, I don't know, this reversal, um, where because Pharaoh has said no and no and no and no nine times, God finally turns on Pharaoh what, what Pharaoh had tried to do to Israel. And, um, the final plague is that, on this one particular night, the the firstborn males of Egypt die, um, including Pharaoh's uh, in Pharaoh's household. And uh, uh, we all probably this is the bit that, if anything, like we all know from the movies, right? <laughs> like, like uh, if you've never read the Bible, even you've you've probably seen, if not the Heston or if not the Baal, then you've seen the Prince of Egypt, and you've seen this dramatized, uh, and. And so that moment in the story, this is sort of where the, where things pick up for us. Uh, yeah. And that night in the wake of all of that, Pharaoh crumbles and then like sends Israel out, you know, it's the let my people go moment. And you can imagine we're told that these people have been down there, like these Hebrews have been down there for what, 400 years, Mm -hmm. something like that. Right. And from much of that, apparently as slaves, like by that point, you can imagine that you've forgotten like you've forgotten what it's like to be free. And so they're on their way out and, and like seeing the wilderness and the possibility of freedom stretching out in front of them. And then all of a sudden they come up over some rise or another or around a corner and boom, they're right there in front of uh, a shore, this huge body of water that they can't go around. And that's a problem. It's twice the problem when they can hear the hoof beats behind them. Right. And, um, and this army bearing down on them and Pharaoh has sent his own um, military to, uh, to finish what he started and failed to do and, and to commit the complete genocide of these people. And, uh, and there in that moment, you know, this is like the climax of every dramatization of the book of Exodus. God, like 
God tears a hole through the water right down to the seabed. And Israel, these Hebrew slaves, plunge down under the waterline and emerge safe on the other side of certain death on the far shore. And the waves crash down on all the Egyptian chariots that chase them down there. And the people realize they're free. And so you hit Exodus 15. And Exodus 15 is actually the very first song you get in the Bible. It's the song of Moses. And everyone's freaking out and passing tambourines around. And they um, and they sing the Lord, the Lord, this the, the, the warrior God who fights for those who can't fight for themselves. Um, the God of, you know, and they celebrate God's relentless, faithful jailbreak love for them. Um, so that's the context. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a big context, but like, in other words, the context is, and you can edit this shorter if you want, Dave. The, the context is God jailbreaking Israel out of Egypt and all of the drama. And so the craziest thing about all this is that like in the middle of, of the tug of war that is the plagues and this like climactic element bending salvation at the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, God tells Israel to sit down and eat. Um, and not only that, but God immediately tells them that they're going to, that this meal that they are going to eat is actually going to be uh, something they need to repeat every year forever. Mm-hmm. Right. In all your generations, let this be your perpetual observance. Mm-hmm. In, in it says in Exodus 12. So, <laughs> so, um, but there's all kinds of really weird things about that. So one of the things that really stuck out to me when I was uh, reading this text and, and thinking about the community is that I, I stuck out to me, like, this is a very strange feast of memory because, because God gives them a feast to commemorate an event that hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. So that they head into the Exodus, having already eaten their way there. And that in the years to come, when they come to the table every year, they are reliving that moment. Um, so in a way we talk, like we talk about how you need to not get stuck in the past, mm-hmm. which is probably like pretty sound advice in the way that we usually mean it. But there's this other way in which God insists that Israel always be stuck in this past. Mm-hmm. Right. That this, um, this is the moment that they're supposed to live from and toward somehow that this is the moment that kind of everything centers around. Uh, so it's a really fascinating meal. And, but the second weird thing is that like that, that seems to, it echoes what happens, uh, many, many centuries later on the night, uh, before Jesus is betrayed when he gathers his disciples together in the supper room for a Passover meal and, and begins to riddle his way with them using bread and talking about flesh and using Mm -hmm. wine and talking about making of covenant. And he has spoken about an Exodus, this Mm -hmm. riddle of an Exodus that, that he's, he and they are being um, carried up in. And again, he gives them the, a meal of memory before all of this happens. And it's all bound up with Passover mm-hmm. and it's like hard to, hard to separate these things. Right. So. Yeah. You, I mean, there's, this is, uh, it's all coming back to me now as, uh, <laughs> as one famous artist once said, <laughs> um, 
There's a lot, Nate, that you uh, spoke to and alluded to on Sunday in this story that it's not, it's not like a just static event that is sort of, you know, you've got a bunch of signposts to right, right, right. it's like, oh, something happened there. Don't forget it. But it's, it's actually this reliving, like the mem, the act of remembering is this reliving act. And it, it's like continually defining a sense of identity. And I mean, you quoted your boy, John Dunn, on, <laughs> right. on, on the significance of remembering and how yeah, that yeah, is like, yeah, yeah. uh, that's somehow like a, it has a present reality to it. And it's not just the, at the past, you know, thing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's, um, the 17th century Christian poet and eventually preacher named John Dunn said in a sermon once he said, uh, the art of salvation is, but the art of memory, mm. right? If you want to learn how to play along with God's grace, right? If you want to learn to work out your salvation of fear and trembling, mm-hmm. get real good at, memory mm-hmm. which is a very uh, uh, leapt off the page for me the first time i saw it. i read something else from him this week where he said the nearest way to god is through memory mm. um but what he means by that is something maybe different than we do like he's um he's someone who had eaten a lot at the table of saint augustine mm-hmm. and augustine was fascinated with the memory as kind of like the seat of our heart and our imagination mm-hmm. the place where we we store up all that we have known and where we, um, and where we take all that we have known and use that to interpret the present and the future, so that the memory is like the place where past and present and future meet for us as creatures. Yeah. And so, yeah. So that that's part of why um, what I suggested on Sunday is that that when we come to something like the the feast of memory that is the Passover, and that is the Lord's Supper, and that is somehow these two meals hitched together and stitched so tightly you can't take them apart that you're when you when you enter into this feast of memory right do this in remembrance of me jesus says um this will be a day of of memory of remembrance for you says moses to israel when you when you walk into that and you practice memory you end up um you end up doing something with the past and doing something with the present and doing something with the future that it's not just the past mm-hmm. and you're not just relating to something that's distant there, but you're actually, um, you're pulled mm-hmm. between, between, uh, God's past and God's present with us and God's future for us. Mm-hmm. So that was the, um, that was my suggestion was that, um, that Passover and that the Lord's supper which has been so important for the practice of uh, week, week by week of St. Clair, as long as I've been going to St. Clair, um, that, that, that meal puts you at the crossroads, mm-hmm. at the place where past and present and future meet and where God meets us at that intersection. Yeah, and I mean, there were, there were aspects of how you told this event of Moses and the Israelites and Exodus uh, that uh, had a, I'd say like a, a new Testament language to it of an old Testament event where, you know, God could do anything to decimate the Egyptians and prove his power and to sort of leave this mark on his people. But you know, you alluded to, Oh, but God chose to take his people under through this body of water and coming up at the other side and you know this representation of 
what we know to be baptism of death and resurrection. Like it's right. Right. You talked about the, um, you know, the God is not by mistake. You know, the God was, you're working all these, all these things out in the story. Right, right, right. Yeah. So like, I, again, like one of the people who puts this really well is this, this fellow named John Dunn, who I read a lot of because I got to for school. I, I do, I do research on him, but he says once in a prayer to God, he says, it's not, uh, he says, God, you clearly love to speak in metaphor. You know, you open the scriptures and you've got, um, uh, you've got even Jesus just, he says, like saying, I am the vine. I am, uh, mm-hmm. I am the good shepherd. Mm-hmm. I'm the gate. Mm-hmm. Like what is, uh, obviously we don't think Jesus swings on hinges, right? And is made out of like, <laughs> out of reclaimed barn, <laughs> barn wood, right? Live like, <laughs> like that's like, but, um, but that is that, that God loves to, sp- to speak by annexing images. Mm other than himself to himself to image himself. Right. And, but then Dunn goes further and says, but it's not just the phrase of thy words. He says he's 17th century. So he gets to use the word thy, yeah. Yeah, not just the phrase of thy words that is merit metaphorical, he says, but it's the phrase of thine actions. In other words, God, God, you know, you not only speak in metaphor, you do in metaphor, which is this, he's, he's tapping into this ancient Christian conviction that, what you find in the his whole history of Israel, as it's given us in the Old Testament, is not only what God did with them there, but also somehow like, kind of like the alphabet and grammar of what God does, of what God continues to do in the church, mm-hmm. of God, what God will do one day for the entire creation, of what God comes to do in each one of our lives individually. Mm-hmm. The, that um so this is part this is part two of what i was talking about in the sermon i said that like uh that so in in terms of the way the 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 meal the meal of the lord's supper relates us to the past it sort of gives us an anchor i said anchor is sort of the image i used to talk about how we relate to the past in the lord's supper um horizon line is the image I used to talk about how we relate to the future in the Lord's Supper. But when we're talking about the present, I suggested that, um, that the Lord's Supper acts like the legend in the corner of a map, right? Right. So if you've ever picked up a map and you're trying to find like the campsites on it, or you're trying to figure out where a town is, or, um, you look at the legend or even what the scale of distance is, you look at the legend and the legend has a series of symbols and shapes that let you use the map in order to find your way, mm-hmm. right? That let you interpret what's happening um, on this, in this landscape. And I've suggested that in a way like the, what, what we have in the, what we're given in the meal is like a legend like that. Mm-hmm. So that, um, you know, if you're trying to find who, like, who of us isn't just trying to like find our way? Like, where am I right now yeah. in my life? Right. Yeah. What is happening to me? Where is God? What the heck is God doing? What does this moment mean? Right. I've, I've lost my job and I can't find one or I, um, I'm battling, uh, this addiction or this persistent character flaw. What does that mean? Or, um, or I've, uh, 
I experienced this profound work of God in my life. And now I feel like I've been left on my own and I'm not so sure where I am. Right. Uh, Whatever it might be, like we're trying to figure out how to read our life. I think that's a lot where a lot of our discernment talk comes from. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, so I said, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Um, so I, I, I sort of took, uh, I, I, I had us think about the Enneagram mm-hmm. and, um, so I told the story on Sunday that there's a friend of mine who came for a visit a few months ago and, uh, and we did all the catch up stuff. You know, I took him to cake and loaf and I took him to, um, to donut monster and, and, uh, in the way that you can only feel justified, you know, going to both of those places in Hamilton when you have a friend visiting. So it was working for me. <laughs> and, and after we'd, we'd sort of like caught up and like reestablished connection, he, there's clearly something on his mind. And, and he turned to me and he just said like, man, like, what's the deal with the Enneagram? <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that me as a kind of a generally suspicious person, that I might be one to share his suspicion, you know? And so, so I looked at him and I said, well, speaking as a four, <laughs> yeah. of course, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and he rolled his eyes at me and, uh, and we laughed a little bit, but, but he, he circled back immediately to say, no, no, no. What I mean is like, uh, like he said, my spouse and like all of my friends, all of my Christian friends back, uh, back West are like so into this thing. They're so into it all of a sudden. And he just asked me like, what do you think that's about? Why? Mm-hmm. Why? And if, if you don't know what the Enneagram is, you uh, likely do, but it's, right, it's a right. personality typing system. It, it helps like a Myers-Briggs or other, right. um, other methods. It's, uh, it's a very robust and, and maybe, uh, in some ways nuanced way of seeing yourself and, seeing where you fit in the world. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, 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 and like, um, yeah, if you're listening, like, you know, you know, one of these sort of personality systems, right? There are, there's so many of them on offer. And I, so the question I, uh, that he raised, I thought was so interesting. What are these things about generally mm-hmm. and why, why are there so many of them right now? And why, um, why, why do we find them so deeply attractive and sometimes quite helpful? Right. And what I suggested is that like, this is actually living right now. Um, life just feels, can feel so say, chaotic and confusing mm-hmm. at the interpersonal level, like trying to understand what in the world makes other people tick mm-hmm. and why, why we seem to have chemistry with some people and then like uh, negative chemical reactions <laughs> with other people. Right. And, or, or like to understand yourself, like why in the world you do the things that puzzle you or that frustrate you about you and, um, and what that means for your vocation. Like we are, um, we, it feels like we're living in a crisis of interpretation right now and that what we want and what we need actually is a system of like an alphabet of signs and symbols and shapes and types, mm-hmm. right? Uh, INTG, yep. right? Enneagram, uh, three wing two, right? Like, or like, wh- you, you just named me. <laughs> like whatever it might be. Um, and, and that we want something that, that, uh, that a language of categorizing the world that we can use that that's simple enough to use and complex enough to actually help us, you know, organize 
uh, and find our way. It's this image of wayfinding, right? Like yeah. when you're you're dropped off in the forest, you're you're trying to figure out how to interpret what you see around you in order that you can get where you need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find your direction um, reliably. Mm-hmm. And and what I was suggesting is that um, that it's not just that the that on the one hand the Eucharist anchors us to this moment of salvation right it it helps us in the in the lord's supper we relive the night of jesus's betrayal and we we witness the slow drama of his death and resurrection and we actually like take part in that and we're also sort of in that moment sort of time is folding and we're touching the moment of israel's escape from slavery and from all that oppressed them into the freedom of new life, mm-hmm. right? Um, this, this trajectory into the waters of, of death and out into the wilderness of freedom with God, um, that's there in both Israel and Jesus. Um, but not only does that anchor our identity in this solid thing that God has done for all time, I was suggesting that it also, it, it gives us the shape of the thing that God's up to right now. Mm-hmm in our lives in various ways, probably in more ways than any of us would know. Right. So that like, um, you know, that if we find ourselves like under the thumb of some enemy Mm -hmm. close at hand or a little further off something in ourselves, even some, you know, some propensity to make a mess of things that we can't seem to get out from under. Um, then, Every time you come to the meal, you are invited to see yourself as someone, um, someone under the thumb of that Pharaoh mm-hmm. and, and someone whom God is working to liberate mm-hmm. through, um, uh, through God's liberating uh, baptism in the Holy Spirit and in repentance and out into the freedom of life in Christ, right? That, that, but that God's always working freedom from that which 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 enslaves and pushing us out into uh into the freedom of life with him wherever we are and that somehow the the story that's told that's packed into this little meal um helps us make sense of where we are right now and 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 reassures us that in some way god is doing that same work on a small scale in our lives right now mm-hmm. and and if and we can um we can turn toward that work. We can play along with it, right? We can like, like you can, you can let the current of that work take you with it. Right. Yeah. That we, I mean, it's a place of receiving you know, and being reminded, but somehow some way, because it's, we're made participants with yeah, yeah, yeah. The suffering That's Jesus, like, word. because we're, uh, we're taking, bread and use these very tactile physical things and jesus lived this incarnated life like where his his flesh his blood like every ounce of his being was the presence of god in our midst and Mm. somehow he is making himself available over and over and over again i mean we we're not catholic in in the sense of uh oh we we think uniquely the presence of Christ, you know, is in that bread and in that juice, you know, in a way that nothing else is. But uh, it, it there's this incredible mystery of 
being able to be participants with the presence of Jesus with us, just as he's with the disciples. And it's, um, I mean, he gave that meal as this way of remembering, just like Moses was given this, you know, meal as a way of remembering. And it's spanned generations and cultures and centuries. Like it's, it's the thing that holds people of God together throughout history yeah, I so appreciate what Nate was saying on Sunday is that, oh, maybe we need it now more than we ever thought we did. You right, know, right, like right. That we're in the midst of so much change and uh, so many things that uh, disorientate us that the meal is the thing that situates us. It continually reminds mm. us of mm. God's nearness uh, and that he's with us and he's for us. And I mean, uh, I mean, you spoke well to like, understanding the societal change that we find ourselves in that uh, is maybe actually unique to like our time and place and and demands uh, a response, you know, and, and the Lord's supper is like one of those things that we need to cling to in the midst of so much change. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I spoke about this, um, there's, there's this German uh, sociologist named Harmut Rosa who has done work on something he calls social acceleration. And, and basically what he's done is he's looking at um, the different rates of change that happen in human societies between generations. And he has this basic kind of like three-part taxonomy, right? The first is that like some things change super slowly, a grain here or there. Like that, and they happen so slowly that you actually, um, that things, uh, that culture changes only over many generations mm-hmm. and so slowly that you barely perceive it. Mm-hmm. Then there's, uh, uh, then there's the change that happens between generations where something, some cataclysmic event or some new technology often or form of life, um, creates a rupture so that it's a totally different ball game for a parent than it is for their child by the time their child grows up. Right. You think about the difference that something like the automobile made Mm -hmm. right between, between one generation and the next, right. As soon as the automobile is, um, is in play, the way that cities are laid out changes completely. And the way that cities are laid out changes the way that work happens and it changes the way that home and family happens. And like the, the changes cascade out. We could say the same thing about um, all kinds of things, but then you've got a third, a third kind of uh, uh, gear up in the rate of change, which is intra generational change. That's like change within the generation. And, and that's the thing that we know all too well, where, um, a piece of technology, uh, the way that we communicate with one another, um, our convictions as a culture change within like inside a 10 year period. So that even you might look back on yourself five or six years ago, and you might now be unable to imagine what it was like to live before this, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you have, we can't even really remember many of us can't even remember what it was like to live before the internet anymore, mm-hmm. but you, some of us can remember what it was like to live before Facebook. And that feels so utterly different than now. Right. Or before the smartphone, mm-hmm. right? Like 
I played in a band right out of, like, out of high school and, um, and I remember using MapQuest <laughs> to make a binder full of maps to get us to and from venue to venue, city to city, all across Canada for an entire tour. So this is like premeditated act of having <laughs> right? to like plan it out. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, whereas now you like, who isn't going to use Google maps for that? Like, like traveling is different because of that piece of technology. So the point is though, that, that, um, with this ever accelerating rate of change driven by the market and driven by technological innovation and mostly here controlled sort of by the Northwest quadrant of the world that we happen to be living in. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, that just means that like never has the past felt so removed from us. Mm -hmm. We feel cut off from ourselves even a short time ago. It's no wonder that, that I think many people like myself profoundly included here can come to feel so unmoored. Like who am I really? I don't live the same place I grew up. Mm -hmm. I don't do the same thing that I thought I was going to do when I lived in that place. I don't even do the same thing I was doing three years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm not sure that next year I'm going to be in the same job. Mm -hmm. And, um, right. And I have these tiers of friends that maybe I've like lost all but cursory Facebookian kind of mm -hmm. contact with. Like, like there's just, there's so much rupture and so little continuity that you can feel a drift. And, um, and that is part of why I think that for us in a, maybe a special way, um, we're in such a good spot to rediscover, um, and to sink into the Lord's supper as a meal of memory mm -hmm. that um, a, a meal that's, that helps, um, rescue us from the world we're making for ourselves that by anchoring us and giving us an identity, right. That, that at that table in reliving that drama, you're adopted into this story, right? These, these, this is, this is our history here. And it's, um, it's the story that continues to define us and shapes our world now. And it means that we are, who are you? You are, you are the one that God brought out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. You are the one who passes through the passes out of slavery to death and to sin and to all the powers that, that destroy God's creatures and who plunges down into the self-giving death of Jesus and, and who is raised up into new life, who's freed to love others and to, to live in humility and without looking over your shoulder and without being anxious and with an identity that's been given. Mm -hmm. Right. You are the, you are the child of this particular God who acted for you long before you even knew to how to ask. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Right. By the time you know who this God is, this God has already rescued you. Right. And has already set up this story for you to be adopted into and to, and to learn the, the unforced rhythms of. So like, um, that is to say that like, this is a, this is a story that can hold us that can give us continuity together and that can anchor us, mm -hmm. anchor us in, in a time of social acceleration and maybe even slow us down in some ways together. Mm. And there's, there's such a beauty in what you're saying because, uh, and you said this as well, uh, on our Sunday gathering is that 
the act of taking this bread and this juice, it is a very bodily act. It is not like fully, you know, we, we are knowingly or willfully taking it, but uh, our ability to take it is not fully dependent on how much we comprehend it. You know, it's not the, the intellect isn't sort of the thing that you have to solve in order to be able to, physically receive it there's this mystery taking place right. of physically receiving it while maybe not fully understanding it <laughs> yeah and i think that's really important dave and i think it um so i can remember when i became a christian around 17 and i had my first experiences coming to the table um i knew it was about it was among, among some like amazing this amazing baptist congregation and i knew this was a meal of remembrance um, and when I came, I, uh, but when I came, as I was learning to come to the table, uh, it felt like what I was trying to do was just like squint really hard and like concentrate and tr- do my best mm-hmm. to sort of like mm-hmm. put my mind on Jesus because this was like, this was, there's nothing really special about this meal, but it's, there's a meal that's sort of just like shouting Jesus at you mm-hmm. so that you actually like take Jesus seriously. Right. Um, and sometimes maybe that you take your sin seriously. And so it would become a really solemn thing. Um, and a little bit later, um, a couple of years on from that, I remember coming to the table and feeling like, um, like I was, this was a moment I was supposed to encounter Jesus in a, in sort of this spiritual, emotional way, which I also, I think is true. The first bit, I, you know, you're supposed to remember Jesus, I think, and you're supposed to, um, pursue encounter with the living Jesus who's there. Um, but there was this thing I was, uh, I was, I get so wrapped up in myself mm-hmm. and how well I was using the technology of this meal, right? I was trying to use it and then sort of throw it away like a ladder that I would use to like climb up to a spiritual experience mm-hmm. or to like a cognitive remembering of Jesus, but then kick the ladder away. Cause I don't need it anymore. Like a booster rocket that would sort of yep. set me off into spiritual orbit. And then, uh, I'd leave it like the meal and everyone else behind and sort of have my moment with Jesus. Yeah. What I think is unhelpful about all that is that we have a tendency to think that the whole life of faith is something that happens in the head. I think there's stuff going on in the church that we we're unlearning that right now. And, and one and the meal is one place to unlearn it. I think because the kind of remembering that we do at the Lord's supper is remembering that you can only do with your body. So to go back into Exodus 12, one of the things uh, God tells Israel to do year after year, year after year, they have to slaughter the uh, the lamb mm-hmm. and eat it. Even though they are no longer doing this ritual of sort of blood on the door uh, to, to sort of signal that they are covered and that, 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 um, that God can pass over them, but they're still to do the lamb thing. Mm-hmm. Like they're still to go through that. And then even, uh, what even more humorously, right. Is that there's, they are still, um, to sort of get ready for the road trip, like strap their sandals on, get their outer cloak on staff in hand and eat the lamb. Like they're mowing down on the way to soccer practice, right? <laughs> like, like you're supposed to eat in a hurry. It says eat it in haste. Mm. And the funny thing is that that makes sense on the original night of their, of their departure because it's all going down and they are on the run for it, right? 
but every other year it's it's not that way right <laughs> there is there isn't um uh, the the Egyptians aren't all around them literally and uh, they aren't going to have to make a run for it literally and they're but they're supposed to act it all out mm. that is to say that like you 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 don't celebrate the Passover faithfully if you don't play act the thing mm. if you don't sort of relive it and and go through the motions go through the literal motions of that drama and the same is actually true of the Lord's Supper you don't celebrate the Lord's Supper if you don't have bread or if you don't have something that you had to press a grape to get yes. that you drink, right? Yeah. Like, and, and, um, and you don't celebrate the Lord's Supper if you don't retell sort of moment by moment the story of the things Jesus said the night that he gave us this meal. So, and, and, and you don't, you, and you don't actually celebrate the Lord's Supper unless you all actually go and, and, and gather to eat in some way. The churches do that all kinds of different ways, right? Mm -hmm. So that is to say that like, um, that, um, two things. One is that like the remembering is in the doing. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that we're invited not to just try to sort of anxiously use the meal for private spiritual experience, but to trust the meal, right? To, Sometimes we get so anxious about going through the motions because we know that we can take things for granted and sort of like coast on cruise control through life, right? Yeah. Through even the most important relationships, yeah. even the most important um, bits of the day, right? We can eat with the people around us at supper time, the people we love most and like not care, mm -hmm. right? Um, like we're so good at, at not being awake to what's happening. Fair enough. But... Sometimes we get way too anxious about that. And what I would say is come to the meal and go through the motions, commit to going through the motions mm. and see what the motions make of you. Mm. Right? Notice what the motion, notice what direction the motions push you in, <laughs> right? Let them set you in motion, uh, enter into the drama. And, um, and if you're someone who feels like, um, either bored by the repetition mm -hmm. or uh, anxious because of your ability or inability to conjure a certain kind of spiritual experience for yourself mm -hmm. or confused as to what it even means to remember Jesus. I, one of the things I would say is just trust the meal, be present, take the bread, take the the grape juice or the wine and be there be a part of the drama with the others around you and dare to imagine that God's up to something mm -hmm. as we're doing it together, mm -hmm. that God's making something of us, that God's instilling a memory in us, imprinting it in us. That's going to anchor us. Right. Yeah. That's so good because we, the meal is this yet another reminder that God is the great initiator, you know, that oh, yeah. he's, you know, it is our opportunity to respond, but we, we, yeah, I, like Nate's saying, we, we let that process do its work 
on us as sometimes I think we carry the burden and often comes out as guilt or shame of we have to make the process work mm. like as though taking the bread and, and the juice isn't quite enough and we've got to muscle it into something more like some kind of experience right. like right, you're right. saying and yeah it's this week in and week out repetition reminder for us of oh god is the one who's doing the work to us mm. and through us and we need to give ourselves a whole lot less credit for the part <laughs> that we play in the mix like we right. we need to be the willing participants but uh yeah god's the one who's gonna uh use that practice to form something in us it's our job just to show up to that practice right um it's it's the spirit of god that would make it a transformation you know in our life um yeah yeah and you said god that this reminds us that god's a great initiator and i think that takes us back to something and this is actually something i didn't say on sunday that i wish that i that i that i <laughs> wish i had said which is that like <sighs> um yeah it's easy to I, I imagine it's pretty common to come to the table and not know what's what to expect or to feel like you don't get what's going on and and uh, and maybe even to feel badly about that but but I think one of the one of the things that the order of the story tells us Our, uh, <laughs> my my dog has paid us a visit in the middle of the recording so if you've hung on for this long hang on a couple more minutes yeah. <laughs> we'll let we'll let, let Nate finish up <laughs> well, it's just that like they eat first they eat first. And so um, uh, the night that God gives Israel this Passover meal, they do not understand what's about to go down. Mm. They've heard some from Moses, but they have no idea of the scope of the thing that they are about to live through in the next 24 hours. Mm. And, um, and yet they're given the meal of memory ahead of, ahead of their understanding, mm-hmm. right? Um, that they, they are already taking part in the commemorating of a thing that hasn't happened to them yet. Mm. And the same is true of the disciples. They are mostly confused when Jesus is saying, this bread is my body. This cup is my blood. Mm -hmm. And they've heard him say disturbing stuff that he's going to die. And they fought him on it. And they're hoping that he means that sort of non-literally or something Mm -hmm. maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, But Jesus trots all of that out. And once again, the first, so the first Passover and the first Lord's Supper are shared by people who don't understand what's going on and who, who will only get it later when through the lens of the meal they've shared, they look back on the thing God has done in their lives and they're able to see it hang together with the meal and that the event and the meal interpret each other and, and cement something in them. And one of the things I think we should give ourselves conscious permission for and encourage one another in is, um, what if it's like that for us too? What if every time you come to that meal, you actually don't really know what's going on? First, maybe in the thing that God did back then, mm-hmm. the thing God has done for all time for us, but even in the thing that God's doing in your life or that God's about to do, right? Whether you're at 
some kind of crossroads and you can't see a way across the deep water, right? Or Mm -hmm. you're under the thumb of something in your life that you can't seem to get out from under, or you are in the middle of what feels like cataclysm as God is is maybe dismantling something in your life, Mm -hmm. or you're sort of just emerged breathless on the other side of, of the far shore of of what seemed impossible and now you're celebrating. Like, wherever you are in all of that, maybe the meal that you take part in actually is the beginning of you um, walking into the thing that God is doing. That it actually initiates um, and that part of part of God's delight is to do things for us and with us before we even know enough to understand what's going on. Mm. Like that that's one of the ways that grace mm. gets real clear with us mm. about, about the fact that, um, that, that you can't get up earlier in the morning, so early in the morning that you get the jump on God, mm. right? That, mm-hmm. that like Eugene Peterson says, um, God always has the first word with us. Mm-hmm. Um, the only, th- the only thing left for us is to answer Mm-hmm. And to get and to take part in the conversation, and I feel like um, the fact that we are invited to the table before we have it all sorted, and before we understand everything that's going on, is one of the many signs that that God plants in the Christian life to to relax us and and make and help and uh, instill gratitude in us that mm-hmm. like we don't have to conjure all of this out of our own resources, right? That's beautiful. Well, I, I mean, we could we could keep going for a while, <laughs> but uh, if you weren't with us on Sunday, or if you are coming back to this trying to uh, scribble notes of what you couldn't on Sunday, then we hope this is of good help. Um, this is why we've given this conversation more airtime, is because it uh, it gives shape to why we do what we do. Um, so. Thank you, Nate. You are a gift to our community, and this this is a word that felt like it was the right thing at the right time. Um, so we've never really had a sign off for our podcast, so it's just going to end, and, <laughs> and we'll catch you next time. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Saint Clair. All right. See ya.